who Jacob was. Jacob's his father. And uh, this is, I mean, this is the heavily truncated version. His, you know, his story is worth its own you know, sermon series. Um, and so is Joseph's. I'm only covering like the first part of a trilogy this morning. Um, so here's the short on Jacob. Jacob grew up lacking his father's love and affirmation. His father, Isaac, favored his brother Esau with no ambiguity. Right? There is, you go read the story. It's not very subtle who his father, Isaac, favored. So Jacob kind of grew up in the shadow of his older brother. This gave him a great sense of neediness and neglect. And if we understand that from the outset of his story, it's going to help us explain a lot of his behavior later on. Eventually, Jacob meets this girl named Rachel, whom he falls madly in love with. He works for seven years to make her his wife, and the years felt like days to him. That's, that's the exact phrase in the Bible. That's how madly in love he was with this woman. And you start to get the sense that uh, it is a good and healthy love, and really, you know, working for seven years to earn your wife, uh, I think our divorce rate would be a lot lower if we all had to do that. Um, so it seems like a good thing, but it, at the same time, you have this—you know—he's got this really needy, needy spirit about him, and you wonder if now he's made his life. This is the center of his life, almost starts to function like what we would call an idol. But finally, he did marry her, and Rachel became the emotional center of Jacob's life. Now, Rachel was unable to have children for him. So Jacob began to have children uh, apart from her. But one day, God finally blessed Rachel with a child. The first son she has is Joseph. And then she dies in labor, giving son birth to her second son, Benjamin. And so Joseph is at the bottom. He's one of the youngest of all Jacob's sons. But guess who, which one's his favorite? The one that came from Rachel. So now he gets premier status above all his older brothers, uh, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But now Rachel's oldest child is now the new emotional center for Jacob. This is where Jacob finds his source of identity, his source of meaning, and this is where he finds his joy and happiness. And, uh, and so that's where we pick up. So uh, our first glimpse of Joseph. Now this is, this is not going to be what we talk about in Sunday school with Joseph, because I grew up in Sunday school and uh, vacation Bible school, and I learned how great all these figures of faith are in the Old Testament. And uh, this is the fun part about opening up a narrative like this. So here's our first glimpse of Joseph. He's uh, 17 years old. I find him a little bit less than impressive. And the first thing we encounter, I think this is verse 2, is that he brings a bad report about his brothers to his father. Now, the commentators and translators agree that bad report typically means that the information Joseph is passing along is either very misconstrued or at, the, or at worst it's a flat-out lie. So, in verse 2, what we know about Joseph, he's 17, he's either a tattletale or a pathological liar. So that's characteristic number one. We're going to start, <clears throat> get a picture of who, who this guy is. Now, verse 3 starts to explain how he got this way. It says that Jacob, his father, loved Joseph far more than any of his other sons and made for him a robe of many colors. Now, it's interesting that the scholars don't really know what that means, the only thing that's really, really clear is that it's worth a lot of money. And so this would be like if, uh, if you have 12, you know, 14 sons, and you take one of them and you get them a custom-designed Armani suit, and then the rest of them you get a gift card to Old Navy. And it's... So, you know, you meet, 
you meet all of Jacob's sons, and one of them is just wearing this amazing thing, and everybody else is kind of dressed like common people. And, and you would expect you know, the oldest son maybe to have that, but certainly not all the way down the ranks. But either way, now we see Jacob acting the same way his father Isaac did. Isn't that interesting? Jacob resented his father for showing favoritism towards a son, and what do we do when we have that happen? You know, this is, if you're a psychologist, you're just going to have a field day with this family. Um, and you could probably get paid a lot of money. Um, but either way, we see that he's doing the same thing his father did. Jacob uh, had become to uh, idolize Joseph. He was the most important thing, Joseph. And when I say idolize, I'm using that in kind of the contemporary Christian sense of the word. Not He wasn't you know, making wood cuttings of him and worshiping him. But it would become the most important thing to Joseph. And, and biblically speaking, an idol is where you find your sense of happiness. Whatever you find uh, your greatest joy in is your idol. And if anything you love, you love more than God, it becomes an idol. So Joseph uh, becomes an idol for his father Jacob. Uh, and then finally, we have one other set of characters here to introduce uh, in verse 3. And it's his brothers, all his other brothers. They kind of get lumped in. You know, they don't even get all their names in the story. That's um, the first sign here. But Joseph's brothers hated him. Uh, as, many as, you, as, as many of us know, paper and ink were precious commodities for biblical writers. Uh, so it's out of character for them to waste such precious resources. But in the very outset of this story, it says they hate him three times. They hate, hate, hate. Joseph. And you might think, well, that's a little unfair, because in verse 2, yeah, he's a tattletale, and we kind of hate tattletales, but do you hate, hate, hate a tattletale? Well, we'll see. Uh, and now, if we move forward to verse 5, and this is what we, we didn't get in the lectionary, but I'm going to assume some familiarity with it, and you can go cite it later in the week. Uh, in verse 5, Joseph has a dream, and he shared this dream with his brothers. Now, this dream, you don't have to be a dream interpreter to get this one, it's fairly transparent, and it was an indication that all his older brothers would bow down to him and, uh, and that they would serve him. Now, his brothers, like any brothers, did not take this well. If your little brother comes to you and says, hey, I had this dream that you know, you're going you're gonna to serve me, I'm going to rule over you, all of you, not just one of you, all of you. Um, brothers don't take that well. Siblings don't take that well. Now, the interesting thing about this dream is there's two ways to read this. The, dream, the text does not say the dream is from God. So there's two things you can do with that. There's a commentator who said um, this might be what, what Sigmund Freud called a day's residue, meaning you have one of those dreams where everything accumulating in you all day, all the things you think about all day long just come out in your dream. Well, what's that say about Joseph? It means he sits around thinking all day about how he's better than his brothers and he should rule over them. So that's, that's one case. Um, I think this, there's some plausibility to that. The way I would go is to say this is indeed from God. God is showing him what would eventually happen, what the future would actually hold, and that's true. As uh, this spoiler alert, I'm going to, you know, ruin the story for you in advance a couple times. But this does actually come true eventually, and so Joseph was excited about what he foresaw in the future, but he had no idea what kind of road it would actually take to get him there. Now, this. This seems like, it's, it's, it's a very likely interpretation because it seems like something God would do, right? He gives him this dream, gets him all excited, 
And he's like, but you don't know how I'm going to accomplish this. But yeah, you can get excited about this part. And the other thing that seems very God-ish, it's very consistent with his character in Genesis here, is the culture in Genesis was patriarchal. Let me, actually, it's, it's extremely patriarchal. Everything comes down to the patriarchy. And one of the important principles that goes along with that is the, the rule of primogeniture, which is the oldest uh, is served by the younger children. And here again, we see the Bible flip that principle on its head. And so the Bible is actually being extremely culturally subversive here. This is, if, I mean, we read things in this now, and we go back and read Genesis, and we're like, there's primogeniture in there, that's offensive. It's like, well, actually, it's mocking primogeniture at every turn. It was offensive to its original readers. We should really enjoy this now, because uh, we don't hold birth order favoritism the way they did. But this dream shows the family being brought to salvation in a way that turns their societal expectations upside down. Aside from being uh, offensive because it's coming from the spoiled brat of the family, it's offensive because it's ruining their expectations for how society is supposed to work. Uh, But that is indeed how God intends to play things out. So if we move to verse 9, this is the next dream he has. Once again, this is an elaborate dream that shows Joseph ruling over his brothers. And once again, he wastes no time in sharing this dream with his brothers. Now at this point, you have to stop and you have to ask what kind of person is Joseph? He's either uh, extremely naive, naive, he's either a sociopath who is just totally and utterly insensitive to the way his behavior impacts other people, or he's downright evil. He could be becoming an evil person. But to see that your brothers hate, hate, hate you, and then go share this dream about you ruling over them, and see how they respond to that, and then have another dream and go share that with them. It's like either he delights in their pleasure or he's just totally, you know, his head in the clouds and has no idea what's going on. And this second dream is so offensive that his brother has, or his father has to rebuke him. And I'm guessing from the way his family works, that's kind of a rare event. I'm guessing, you know, the spoiled 17-year-old who has everything, has all the expensive stuff, has his father's love, is probably not rebuked very often. So that's a significant moment. That's where you're like, okay, now, Joseph, you're pretty extreme, but now you're pushing the limits of even what you can get away with. So this is Joseph. This is our biblical figure. This is our icon here. He's 17 years old. He's spoiled, selfish, insensitive, arrogant, shallow, and potentially even evil. The father uh, favors him and spoils him. The son becomes spoiled. The brothers are full of bitterness and resentment. Now this is starting to sound like a real family, right? This is, I mean, this is what we deal with. This is, we see this. Like when I tell you that, you know, a parent favors one child and it's pretty obvious and outsiders can see it, we don't need to think of, you know, we could, it doesn't take us very long to think of a time when that's true. And most of us who are middle children, um, we, you know, we find that in ourselves even when it's not there. Um, but so this is, you know, this is a real family. If anything, this is starting to get, now we're at like daytime television families. This is, um, it's getting bad. So we have the young sibling who's spoiled and arrogant, the rivaling siblings who hate him and walk around with a chip on their shoulder. And basically what we see is that Jacob's sin has poisoned the whole family structure. And here's the amazing thing to keep in mind. And so this is, this is another one. I'm not flipping to the end of Genesis here. I'm flipping way ahead in the Bible. Jesus comes from this family. Right? So this is, you know, this is, his, this is the doctrine of humanity, or, you know, Christ's humanity, as real as it gets. He comes from this brokenness and pain 
and, and shattered family structures. Now, this should change the way that we think about the Bible, because the Bible isn't like any other holy book. And here's why. So we have what I'll call traditional religion over here, and we have the gospel over here. Traditional religion says, keep these rules, live this way, and you'll have a good life and be rewarded in heaven. Now, the books that go along with traditional religion show exemplars of the faith, people who have lived it well, people who have done it well, they've accomplished it, and we just model ourselves after this. The Bible, on the other hand, they, it gives us Jacob and it gives us Joseph, right? We see immature, selfish, greedy, broken people who cause pain to other people. The Bible, in a sense, is not really trying to show us how to live the good life. And if it were, this would be a terrible story, right? Because all we can learn from this story is how not to raise children, right? And it takes a long time to teach by negation like that. So what this story in the Bible actually does teach us is that the grace of God breaks into your life against your will and saves you from sin and brokenness that you would never be able to overcome on your own. Religion's mantra here is that if you obey, then you'll be accepted. The gospel over here says if you're absolutely accepted and you're sure of your acceptance, then and only then will you ever begin to obey. Do you see the difference there? They're the complete opposite, which is why the Bible sort of looks like the opposite kind of book. And so what we're reading here in Genesis is actually the gospel starting to shine through. The painful realization in this story is that our flaws are not just the result of individual action, but they also happen to us by relationship. So many of us in the West, right, we like to think that uh, we're totally individual, we're autonomous, uh, you know, we're not impacted by other people. We're our own person. And the Bible here is just saying, sorry, that's just not, that's not true. I mean, any field in the world could tell you that's not true. But the Bible here is, is making it pretty clear. Uh, our flaws and failures in large part come to us through our relationships with other people, usually family and friends, uh, especially family. At the same time, our flaws are only ever made known to us through a relationship, Right? So when we put ourselves in a vacuum in you know, our individual, just autonomous self, we can't see our own flaws and failures. We only see it when we interact with other people. And I could probably get some married people to testify to that, um, that they had flaws they didn't know about until they were in inescapable proximity with another person. So the people around you can see what's wrong with you better than you can. Families and communities reveal our flaws to us uh, but they also serve to heal our flaws, which is what we'll start to see. And we're going to talk more about this later, but we need to pick up the story again. So we left off after the second dream. And by now, the brothers have been pushed to boiling point. They're like, that's it. You know, we've got to do something. We can't take any more. If this guy has a third dream, you know, they would have just killed him on the spot. Um, so his brothers are out pasturing their father's flock. They see Joseph coming from afar, and they come up with a plan to kill him. They grab him, strip him naked, throw him into a pit. But one brother, well, a couple brothers here, but uh, one brother has a hesitation about killing him. Uh, Judah, in verse 26, he asks this question. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now, notice the conviction here is not against killing. They're like, yeah, he deserves it, but what would we get out of that other than getting rid of him? Let's see, you know, let's work ourselves a better deal here. Um, so they decide to sell their brother. Now, if you think that you've seen family dysfunction like this before and that your family starts to parallel their family, this is probably where the comparison ends, right? 
We have sibling rivalries. We have siblings not like each other. We have favoritism. But we don't really have siblings selling each other into slavery so much. Um, at least not in my family. When I was a kid, I didn't even know that was an option. Otherwise, you know, we would have, you know, might have looked into it a little bit. And so this is why I say things like we shouldn't necessarily look to emulate the Bible, right? Because that's not what the, the narrative doesn't teach like that. The narrative doesn't teach, here's what they're doing, go do what they do, right? That's what the traditional religious books do. They're like, here's exemplars of the faith. Don't behave like this. This is not the application point of the sermon. We're still going through the narrative, and this is why they're harder to teach. Um, but one of the most curious features of this, and if you notice that the title of my sermon is called The Hiddenness of God. The most curious feature of this text is that God is not mentioned in this story at all. He seems utterly and completely absent. Now, as this should strike us odd, because if I went upstairs and I asked the children, what's, who's the Bible about? They would say God, right? So we expect to see God in every story. And so this is where we as the reader should begin asking, where is God when all this is happening? Certainly Joseph would have began to ask that question when he's in the pit, stripped naked. Uh, and later on in the story, we see that his father asked the same question, where is God? Why has this happened to us? And the answer isn't really that simple. But here's my best shot at it. God is in the coincidences. Now hear me out. There are a lot of little things in the story that just keep happening just the way they need to in order for the story to progress. In verses 12 through 17, Jacob sends his sons to tend for his flock. They just happen to go further away than where they were instructed to go. Jacob just happens to send Joseph to go look for them. Joseph just happens to run into a man who overheard his brothers talking about where they would go. So Joseph picks up and goes there. His brothers happen to see him coming and throw him in the pit. And there happen to be traitors from Egypt going by right at that moment. These are a lot of little coincidences. And you may now say, um, well, you know, those do seem like providential arrangements, but that doesn't really seem like the outcome God would want for his people, right? That's bad. This is like, yeah, it's providential, but it's bad. Um, but now if we look ahead at the end of the story, and this is another spoiler alert, we'll see that it was absolutely necessary for Joseph to get out of Egypt or out of the land and into Egypt before the famine hit. Ah, see now, you don't have this perspective in 37, but by the time you get to 39 and 40, you start to get this. Um, if uh, Joseph had not been delivered to Egypt, potentially his family and his entire people would have been wiped out by the famine that was coming. And remember, this is the messianic line. This is the family Jesus comes from. So it's really important for God to keep this family alive. Now you may still say, well, that's all well and good, but couldn't God have just snapped his fingers and fixed the problem, right? I'm going to play the skeptic this morning. The skeptic's first reply is, you know, those aren't good things happening. They may be providential, but they're not good. Um, and the second, second skeptical question would say, God should just snap his fingers and fix it. But there's more to the story than just preserving the family. God is working out a complex salvation in Joseph, right? He is a messed up, broken person. And snapping his fingers wouldn't, wouldn't serve Joseph. Joseph is a spoiled, rotten brat. These events shape him into a better person. Now, the skeptic would still say in the situation, they'd go one further and they'd say, well, why not just send an angel to Jacob, tell him he's an idolater, and then he's ruining his family, 
And why not send an angel to Joseph and say, hey, you're a spoiled brat. But I have news for you. Even if an angel came from heaven and told you your flaws, you would not believe them. That's in the Bible, and you see it in the Bible. It's time and time again, and it's true of people that we know, right? How many times have you tried to tell someone else their flaws, and they just don't believe you, right? We're not that receptive to that information. You have to be shown your flaws. And that's what this story serves to show Joseph. It shows him his flaws. They see the defects in their family, and they see their need for God. And so you won't be changed by information unless you're convinced of that information. Simply hearing it doesn't convince anyone. And I said earlier that we see our flaws through our relationships. This is the truth. You can't be told about your flaws. You have to be shown. And on the same token, you can't really be told that God loves you. You have to be shown. And that's what the Bible does for us. It's not just a list of propositions. It's stories. It's narrative. It's God's redemptive plan from beginning to end. And it comes down to Jesus in the end. And so this is why the Bible is a better holy book. I'm not trying to insult other religions. I'm just saying this is why the Bible actually meets us as people where we are. We learn through stories. We learn through experience. And so it teaches us through stories and experience. It shows us who we are, but it also shows us who God is. And once we see God's faithfulness to his people throughout history, we can start to feel confident in our relationships with him. And so Ben preached last week to us about Romans 8.28. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Paul said, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And the question this morning is, do you believe that? That was providential arrangement. You know, Romans 8.28 comes up the week before we see Joseph thrown in a pit. Do we believe that the God of Joseph is our God and is he, is he trustworthy? Is he worth entering into relationship with. And so here's where I would give you just a word of caution here as we're applying this, is don't sell yourself on things God hasn't shown you. Part of Joseph, uh, his frustration in this story, he's shown these visions of him ruling, and he thought, God is going to make me great, right? And God would make him great. And so once he had that figured out, this is what we do, right? This is not just Joseph, this is not just me, this is people, but it's especially me. When you get a glimpse of what God's going to do for you, you figure out all the steps that would have to happen. You're like, well, if I'm going to rule, you know, then I'd probably have to you know, make more money and I have to do this and this and this. And all these things would have to happen in place in order for that, in order for that end to come about because we'd come up with a plan. Well, Joseph probably came up with a similar plan. And once he's stripped of his robes, sold into slavery, he probably thinks, God has given up this promise, right? He said, I was going to rule and all the things that would have needed to happen didn't happen and instead, all this has happened. God failed me. Where was God? And what he didn't know, little did he know, that this is exactly how God was planning to bring about that plan. In fact, it's the only way he could have truly saved Joseph, is to break him. Um, so little did Joseph know, you know, this was precisely the course of action. And I would say similarly for us, there, how many little did we knows do we have in our lives? Right? How many times can you look back and see God's hand working in your life at a time when you couldn't see it then? And what we're to do with that information is we see it in the Bible, we see it in our own lives, and we can now project that forward with confidence. Right? We can live confidently, trusting and faithful in the God of Joseph, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Right? That's what we mean when we say they're shorthands. They say them all throughout the Bible because they're reminding you, like, Remember his story? Remember his story? Remember his story? This is how God works. 
You don't know what's going on, but you trust him because he's good. And so Joseph's story, story shows us that God is consistently at work, even when we can't see what he's doing. It also shows us that we're not perfect people and that we don't have to be. And from this story, we learn how God can work in our lives through people and events that we think are simply catastrophic. People who are mean, shallow, or arrogant may serve an important role in our lives, and sometimes the worst events can turn us into the people that we need to be. And so this week, I would challenge you to reflect on your life and how God has worked you uh, to being the person that you are now. And I mean this, like write it down, journal it. This, uh, it's a lost art, but journal it. Go back and look at stories in your life when God has been faithful to you and write them down. And then when you find yourself in the, in the pit asking, where is God? You go back and read those stories. You say, oh, you know what? I felt this way like six years ago and it actually turned out fine. I'm here now and things worked out quite well. And, uh, and when you read the Bible, you can take that same comfort with you. When we face hard times, we look uh, through the Bible and see how marvelously God takes care of his people. And if you have uh, taken time to reflect on your own life, you can go back and see how God has been faithful to you in your past. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we uh, thank you for your word this morning. It's, uh, it's hard to read these stories. It's hard to uh, understand why you choose to work through the people that you work through. Um, and why you choose to work the way that you do. But we see in this story that you are good. You have revealed that to us. You've been faithful to us. You are good. You are trustworthy. And uh, just help us all to see that. Help us all to grow as you continue to painfully chip away at our flaws and our defects and our brokenness and just shape us into restored, healed, and right people. We ask all these things in your name. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead. You may remain standing. You can sit or kneel for the prayers of the people. We'll do a little bit different than what we've done in the past today. We'll just kind of open it up for prayer uh, this morning because there's been just a lot happening in our world. I think we need a voice and give. Um, and, and pray about. We've had people asking uh, 
from Archbishop of Canterbury to our Archbishop in the ACNA to pray for things like um, what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS and the persecution of Christians there in Iraq um, and other religious minorities. We've seen the news and how horrific it is. So I want to give you opportunity to pray for our world, to pray for what's going on with, uh, in the Middle East with this terrible group, ISIS. And then uh, the Ebola outbreak as well. I want to pray for that. And then uh, Father Matthew and Deb, this is their last Sunday.